0: Hello again, Ars Technica readers. This is the third and final installment of a three-part interview with British astronomer Stephen Webb about Fermi's paradox, or the bedeviling question of why we can't discern any signs of intelligent alien life in the cosmos. If you haven't yet heard part one or two, there are links to them on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest that you go back and listen to those installments before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Stephen Webb. I'd like to close now on the exciting stuff that's about to happen because we are going to learn a lot of stuff that is very germane to SETI um, and other things as well. And you are—you've actually written books on the instruments that we use to gaze into the into the universe and and the things that are coming up new. You are a profound expert in them. Would you care to go through? What's happening with new instruments that are about to come online and help us understand the universe far better than we ever have before?
1: Well, I, I can, again, encourage your, your, your listeners just to, to keep up with, with what's coming, because we're entering, really, a, a golden age for astronomy and, and cosmology. Um, SETI itself, you know, um, Yuri Milner, uh, a Russian billionaire, he's uh, giving... This initiative, a hundred million dollars over the next ten years. So we'll have dedicated SETI programs just through Milner's work. But in terms of multinational uh, collaborations, we've got the European Extremely Large Telescope going to come online. They really worked hard on the name of that. Didn't they? <laughs> it's it's going to call it. They're not the most uh, imaginative people, are they?
0: Here we would have sold the branding rights and named it after Petco or something like that. Tell us briefly what it is, what what makes it extremely large relative to other telescopes, and what cool stuff it will do.
1: It is going to have a mirror of 39.3 meters diameter. That's absolutely huge. But it's not the only one. Uh, The giant Magellan telescope, um, so that's a giant telescope, not extremely large. Slightly smaller, that's coming online 2021. Uh, 30-meter telescope, and that's self-explanatory. Slight hold-up with that telescope in in, in regards to its positioning. Um, It was going to be in in Hawaii, but there's there's a hold-up. Large Synoptic Survey Telescope is coming. That's going to be a telescope with a huge field of view, and it's just going to map the skies every few nights. There's FAST, the 500-metre aperture spherical telescope, uh, just come online. It's a radio telescope. In China, Fast Telescope, this is a Square Kilometre Array, another radio telescope going to come online in the next few years. So these are all uh, wonderful instruments. Um, and in the next year or two, we'll see the Webb Space Telescope, uh, not named after me. I was about to say, nor, nor named after
0: my wife, who, who shares the last name with you and with the telescope. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, it's a replacement for Hubble, essentially. Uh, Hubble had a 2.4-meter mirror web's going to have a six point five meter mirror and, and and some of the questions that we've been uh, discussing and, and, and touching on things like tabby's star, things like the habitability of planets your know, web is is going to be able to answer some of those questions we hope so we're looking for a launch at the end of 2018 maybe 2019. and that's going to be tremendously exciting there's a lot Of astronomy coming
0: yeah so with the Webb telescope my understanding is they'll be able to point that thing at some of the exoplanets that have been found with Kepler that are in the habitable zone and with Kepler that's as much as we can determine With the Webb Telescope, we'll actually be able to pick up chemical signatures and perhaps, um, above all, we'll be able to start looking at the atmospheres of these planets and determine, among other things, if there is an abundance of oxygen in those atmospheres. And it will be immensely suggestive that there is some organic life that is creating that oxygen, correct?
1: That's right. So so you can imagine that as a planet with a, a thin layer of atmosphere just goes in and out of occultation with, with the star. Webb, the space telescope, will be able to see what chemicals are in that that atmosphere. And if it's oxygen, if it's uh, O2, then that's very, very interesting because here on Earth, oxygen is, is produced by life, by photosynthesis, effectively. Yeah. And if all life on Earth went extinct tomorrow, then eventually the, all of that oxygen would would react and, and, and it would disappear from, from the atmosphere.
0: It's unstable enough that it needs to be replenished, basically. And it, it's not so abundant in the universe that we can really imagine a non-organic process that would fill a planet's atmosphere with oxygen. And even if there were one, that oxygen would be unstable enough that without refreshment from some source, and it's hard to imagine a non-organic source, it would be gone relatively quickly. Is that a fair summary?
1: That's right. We we need uh, a source that keeps replenishing oxygen. Otherwise, you, you're going to get lots of rust, like on, on, on Mars or something. So you need a source that uh, replenishes the oxygen in an atmosphere. And the obvious one is, um, is life. Life, Now, it, yeah. it, it's not 100% definitive because you could imagine, I guess, other sources... Um, Non life sources creating this, so I, I can imagine that if Webb does see oxygen, there 's going to be an almighty scientific argument about the significance of this. If we find it in lots of planets, then we 'll be able to start figuring out exactly what it is that 's causing it so it 's tremendously exciting
0: yeah, so it it is just to reiterate this is a this is a telescope that 's going to be launched probably next year. And not long after it goes up there, it will be in a position to gaze at quite a number of planets that we already know are out there, looking for chemical signatures above all oxygen. We could see one of those chemical signatures, you know, before today's college freshmen graduate.
1: On a personal note, I hope I'm around to see it. So I'm I'm hoping it's going to happen soon. Let's do hope that. Stephen, you've been incredibly
0: generous with your time and with your hard-earned wisdom about this. I'm going to just tell folks, it's probably obvious by now, the wild enthusiasm I have for both editions of your book. And what's delightful about it, beyond all that we've talked about, is when you get into Fermi's paradox, you expose yourself to so much science. You start wanting, you need to understand, get at least a very strong layman's understanding of geophysics. You need to get a very strong layman's understanding of, you know, what goes on inside an atom and of so many other things. And what's great about your book is it imparts the necessary knowledge to really approach each of these 75 solutions you really do expose your readers to an incredible breadth of science. And it's also a wonderful book in that you can read it in any sequence that you want. You can just browse from solution to solution to solution, including the fun ones like how long would it take to colonize a galaxy, all the way down to you know what goes on in a quantum experiment and why that's relevant for these things. It really is a great, robust, broad scientific education that I would recommend to any curious mind.
1: Well, it's very kind of you uh, to say so, Rob. And if I could just wrap up by, by making a plea. If anyone uh, has any other ideas, please do send them in. And if there's a third edition, uh, perhaps a hundred solutions, uh, it might well make an appearance. And how can people reach you or find you on the web? Happy to give a, a, an email address. It would be stephen, with a pH Web, all one word, at gmail.com.
0: Thank you so very kindly. And I am sure that for one reason or another, we will be in touch
1: again. It's been a pleasure, Rob. Thank you.
0: Okay, Ars Technica listeners, just a quick context setting interjection for you here. The first eight episodes of my podcast, and this one was number eight, were loosely connected to a novel that I wrote, which is called After On, like the podcast itself. These episodes were co-hosted by my friend Tom Merritt, who some of you probably know from his decades of presenting tech news to the world on CNET, tech TV, Leo Laporte's family of shows online, and now through his very own Daily Tech News show. At the end of those early episodes, Tom and I would discuss how the day's subject ties to the novel, and Fermi's paradox indeed figures into After On's storyline. We'd also talk about the interview itself as a freestanding discussion point. For this serialization on ours, I've cut out the first part of this wrap-up conversation, so we'll now join it already in progress. There are still a couple passing mentions of the novel, but they're not spoilers, and you won't get lost in the conversation if you haven't read it. So here we go. All right, let's finish with your interview with Stephen Webb,
2: and, and specifically Fermi's Paradox, a fascinating question.
0: It really is. And attempting to answer it turns over so many stones in both science and philosophy that it's my favorite unanswerable question to ponder.
2: And yet, we know Stephen Webb's answer from your interview is that we're alone. What's your answer to it?
0: (laughs) Well, I've been thinking about this nonstop since this morning when I told you we should both have an answer ready for this episode. Um, now, if you had asked me during one of the decades that preceded this morning, I would have said that I agreed with Frank Drake, that many intelligent civilizations are out there, uh, only they haven't gotten around to visiting us yet for a diversity of reasons. But I only would have said that with about 60% confidence, because I devoured that book, Rare Earth, that Stephen and I discussed in the interview. And it makes a very strong case that the Earth may be nearly unique in its life-bearing potential. Now, still, despite being attuned to those arguments, I retained that 60-ish percent confidence that we weren't alone. Because given the immensity of time and space that life's had to emerge, we're the galaxy's only intelligence just always seemed, I don't know, pre-Galilean in its narcissism. You know, like saying the universe revolves around the Earth as humans used to think. But then my interview with Stephen, who is... Uh, clearly in no way narcissistic, and is incredibly sophisticated about these issues. That conversation really challenged my thinking, especially that concept of cultural homogeneity, the idea that, sure, any one alien civilization may choose not to visit, or even any dozen civilizations. But to explain the great silence— All existing alien cultures have to unanimously operate under some kind of prime directive that says, Thou shalt not interfere with primitive civilizations. And what are the odds? You know, because that's not the only possible policy that a species could adopt. And it's not the only moral policy that a species could adopt. You could argue that it's morally proper to allow us our independence, but you could also say there's a moral imperative to step in and save us from our primitive, stupid ways— So will 10,000 utterly different alien cultures all independently come to this conclusion? We can't even get all human cultures to agree to anything that's morally debatable or all American subcultures or all New York City subcultures or, or even a hundredth of the people in my neighborhood of Chelsea. So that was the first big challenge my thinking faced in the immediate wake of my interview with Stephen. But my gut sense did hold firm. I mean, maybe I'm just constitutionally incapable of inhabiting an alien-free galaxy as a science fiction writer. But I just can't accept that this vast sweep of time and space would remain lifeless when life sprung up rapidly and spontaneously here on Earth. So, after wrestling with all of this in the unique context of having spent almost three years writing after on, I ultimately borrowed a concept from super-AI theory that, to me, satisfactorily explains the Fermi's paradox, both logically and on a gut level. And it is decisive strategic advantage, that term that was used multiple times in the book by Agent Brock Hogan and others. Um, Just as logic dictates that the first super AI to rise up will establish permanent hegemony over the Earth and never allow a future AI to overthrow it or its way of doing things, because it'll always have a huge and compounding technological lead, I believe the first intelligent civilization to permeate the galaxy will have or will have had the same sort of built-in lead over any upstart civilization that comes along or came along, if it were in the past, later. And this will allow it to impose its values on the newbies that arise a million or a billion years hence. Those values will have allowed the first galactic civilization, which, to be clear, I think rose up far in the past, to survive its own nuclear adolescence and its synthetic biology post-adolescence and its nanotech post-post-adolescence without destroying itself in war. So it makes sense that it would have a live-and-let-live philosophy. Uh, And therefore, I wouldn't be shocked if that galactic philosophy uh, decreed or decided that primitive species should not be interfered with, visited, abducted, probed, etc. And if a second or third or 10,000th civilization, a more juvenile civilization, a less advanced one, came along with different ideas, they'd basically be told, no, we're way more ancient than you, therefore, we're way more powerful than you, and we were here first. And this is the way we do things in this galaxy. So you wouldn't need thousands of civilizations to all independently decide to leave us and others like us alone. You would just need one civilization deciding that, the first one.
2: Would would that civilization happen to have a sincere respect for for local laws, like, I don't know, copyright laws? It might. Because this is reminding me of a book I once read by an author named Rob Reed called Year Zero.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is a... It is the state of equilibrium that came to prevail in my last novel, Year Zero, which may sound like a spoiler, but that's actually laid out in the first three pages, so it's not really a spoiler. (laughs) Um, Although I should point out that when I was writing Year Zero, I was not thinking of solving Fermi's Paradox. But now that I am, I do believe that something like that, uh, probably without the musical comedy elements, did in fact happen. Someone permeated the galaxy first, probably a long, long time ago, and they decided for unknowable reasons um, to allow folks like us to stay in our incubators, to create our own great art, uncontaminated by more advanced species, to come to our own moral conclusions about life, and they're out there. And given their inevitable level of advancement, they're probably quite aware of us, and they've probably been joined by, who knows, maybe 10,000 other civilizations down the eons each of which was politely informed that you can either get on the train or under the train. This is the way we do things. We don't colonize. We don't interfere. And if you don't like it, we'll destroy you with our death rays. And perhaps at some point, if we come to a certain level of maturity and advancement, they'll reveal themselves to us and um, finally pay up for all the pop songs they've been pirating from us. All right. Now, Tom. Yes. How do you answer Fermi's Paradox? Where is everybody?
2: the first thing that I thought when I was listening to the interview was that we've got a hundred billion stars in the Milky way. Yep. And if there's only 10,000 possible civilizations, Mm -hmm. uh, not all of them are going to be happening at the same time. Not all of them will have the technology to broadcast. Some will have moved past broadcast and many of them just won't have any interest. Uh, It should not be surprising that we haven't heard because the distances are vast and it's hard enough to pick up a radio station sometimes, Mm -hmm. much less broadcast one uh, across the universe. And I think the the, what you touched on in the interview about civilizations deciding we shouldn't broadcast uh, is, is probably fairly likely as well. However, overall, I think that's only a part of it. I think what explains paradoxes a lot of times if you look back in history is that we thought there was one answer when there are multiples and i think the fact that maybe an earth with which is in fact kind of a double planet in a habitable zone with just enough water dumped on it with whatever process cleared out the asteroid belt for us uh is rarer than we're estimating in drake's equation mm-hmm. and so While there are other civilizations, there may only be one per galaxy, in which case it's much more difficult for them to communicate. So I I land on the idea that we're not alone, Mm -hmm. uh, that that we'll probably determine as we learn more that the ability of life to evolve is rarer than we think, and that intelligent life, therefore, is even rarer. Uh, and more widespread, making it difficult and possibly impossible uh, mm-hmm. for us to detect each other unless we become incredibly advanced. And I think I'm going to give it a 50-50 chance that we're the first. One of the reasons we don't see any other evidence of anybody else is that we're, we're leading the pack. Uh, and it, it's almost the anthropic principle of like, we, we're we're the first ones to climb up out of the muck. We're the first ones to, you know, survive the asteroid uh, hitting the Earth long enough to develop a civilization and possibly get off the rock. Uh, and there will be others behind us, but we will be that civilization who ends up deciding what the rules of civilization in the galaxy might be.
0: Gotta be someone. And by the way, this very exchange of views demonstrates why Fermi's paradox is such a delight, because the superstructure of concepts, of science, of complex definitions, of philosophy, of reasoning, Mm -hmm. that you need to generate an answer, but also to process an answer, for me to hear and understand your solution, and for your solution to start triggering questions in my mind and vice versa— This question of Fermi's, this domain of thought that surrounds it, it just gives so abundantly. Because the deeper you get into it, the more you need to understand about how the universe works and the deeper you need to think. And that's just a really delightful rabbit hole.
2: It's one of the few examples we have of what the Greeks had as philosophers before so much was known about anatomy and physics and and medicine. They they
0: got to suspect things because they didn't know. Yeah, that is a really powerful analogy. You're you're dead right. This is what the Greeks encountered when they thought about anything from, from thunder on down. I mean, that's cool. It's a really, really cool thought. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a lot of those domains left. No, we don't. In fact, one of the others,
2: of the few others, is that anthropic coincidence yes. that you talked about. Do you
0: have your preferred solution to that? This is one that fascinates me almost as much as Fermi's paradox. It's less of a rich domain because the solution space is narrower, because if Lee Smolin's numbers are right, and if the odds against the various parameters being set just so is in the 10 to the 200 and something if power range, I only see three answers, and one is a complete cop-out, and that's the one that says, holy cow, we're lucky. I mean, that's luck on the scale of winning the Powerball lottery 90,000 days in a row, and invoking that degree of luck feels like abdicating the question entirely. So that leaves two possibilities. One is that someone set the dials deliberately. Now, does that mean it's a bearded god who lives on a mountain and throws lightning bolts down when it's mad? No, it, it could mean anything. It could point to a simulation because someone setting up a simulation would want it to be interesting. So of course they made a life-bearing universe.
2: Thankfully, we live in a simulation that someone wants to win. Right. <laughs>
0: Yes, exactly. Or they want their ant farm to do interesting things. Right, right. That doesn't necessarily mean it's awesome to be an ant on that farm. It just means the farm will be interesting to the kid who owns it. Anyway, door number two is Lee Smolin's solution. He is a very well-known and well-regarded uh, high-energy physicist. His solution is to say that there are so many parallel universes out there that by the sheer weight of numbers, our life-bearing universe is mundanely numerous, despite, paradoxically, being incredibly rare. Now, the problem with the first solution is that it involves invoking a domain, that of the creator, which by definition cannot be accessed or detected by us, because that creator is a huge level up from us, both in levels of reality and in technological prowess. And anything smart enough to create an entire universe or a convincing simulation of one will surely be smart enough to hide its tracks from knuckleheads like us. So again, it feels like a cop-out. You have to invoke something which by definition can't be detected. However, the last remaining alternative is to invoke not one, but 10 to the 500th somethings, which each, by definition, cannot be accessed or detected. Because that's what a parallel universe is, by definition, inaccessible and undetectable, at least with present-day technology and with any imaginable near or intermediate future technology. So we're stuck. Our answer has to stand upon one intellectually offensive thing or 10 to the 500th intellectually offensive things. And this is where I go at Occam's Razor, the principle that when faced with an intractable problem, the simpler competing theory should be preferred to the more complex one. And though I'm no mathematician, I'm pretty sure one is a smaller number than 10 to the 500th. So I do reserve the right to change my mind as soon as 10 minutes from now, but for now... I feel that we're not the most brilliant entities in the universe, and there is a far, far higher power that has a lot to do with us being here, either directly or indirectly. How about you? How do you answer this one?
2: Well, I'm going to come down on the other side, uh, and not just because you came down on that side, but uh, <laughs> I th- I actually think that the only reason infinity seems more complex is because our brains like finite things. Yep. But if you think about it, infinity is the more natural state. Having an end to something is actually impossible to imagine as well. We love, we prefer as humans finite states, but we also always know like, okay, but what's after that? It's mm-hmm. impossible to conjure an end to something without saying, okay, but what's on the other side of the end? Whether mm-hmm. it's space or something else. And we think of the universe as infinite in its ability to expand, I mm-hmm. think it's perfectly natural that there would be an infinite number of universes, which then makes it simply natural that one of them would have all of the constants in the right place for us to exist.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is something that makes mathematical sense. It's definitely something that humanity's two greatest living scientists, Rick and Morty, have explored <laughs> to, yes. to, the, to the great delight of millions.
2: Read your Rick and Morty, people.
0: It's important. Yes, by all means. Well, these are two very Greco-Roman questions. And I'm delighted you came up with that analogy, because people in that era really did approach a lot of scientific questions armed with little more than logic and reasoning. Mm -hmm. And while I certainly wouldn't trade the tools and the fact base that we have today for that, Exploring a question on which there's complete scientific uncertainty with nothing more than those raw tools is a hell of a workout for the brain. So Ars Technica listeners, here we conclude the third and final installment of my interview with Stephen Webb and also my conversation with Tom Merritt. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you're curious about the latest episode in the main After On podcast feed, this week it's an equally fascinating conversation which I think will really resonate with Ars Technica readers. It's an interview with a chemist and DNA architect named Floyd Romesberg. If you have any recollection of your high school biology, you probably know that DNA is written in an alphabet of just four letters. Well, Floyd has added two entirely artificial letters to that ancient alphabet. The science is amazing. The ramifications could be astounding. And on top of that, it's just a great conversation. To hear it, head on over to after-on.com or search for After On in your favorite podcast software. And or join me here again on ours next week. When we'll be serializing another episode from my podcast's recent archives.